Hello, this is Chuka here on another episode of We Talk Our Health, Seven the Underserved, creating awareness in underserved communities and people living in low to middle income countries. Today we have Dr. Ujuka Iwabuchi, who is a senior partner at the Thriving Obstetrics and Gynecology Group in Georgia. She is going to be talking to us about all things gynecologic cancers, screening, diagnosis, and management. I hope you enjoy this podcast and get something from it. So some of the risk factors that we like to mention, um, obviously being of female gender, even though you can have breast cancer in males as well, um, for some reason, in my research, I saw total stature, which I don't quite understand, but it's interesting. Estrogen levels, weight, and body fat index. Increasing age over 49 puts you at higher risk. Certainly in menopause years, um, puts you at higher risk uh, for having breast cancer. Other risks that could um, affect a person's chance of developing breast cancer is um, not having had children, not being infertile, increased age at their first pregnancy, um, late age of menopause or having um, very early age of menopause. Also, if you've had breast cancer before or have a strong family history, that puts you at higher risk. So if one has a first degree relative, this would be a mother or a sister, that puts you at higher risk. And then if you have two um, affected members or two second degree relatives, then your risk goes up. So a lot of the cancers that have been diagnosed now undergo genetic testing. And so these are some of the, you know, these are technical terms for some of the mutations that I look for. And if one happens to be a carrier for any of these mutations, then you can undergo additional screening. Your family members can undergo, you know, additional screening to help prevent and decrease your risk of developing breast cancer. Picture highlights. I wanted to show this because a lot of our moms and our sisters who are starting to get, you know, their mammograms in the report, they may see where there's a mention or a line about, oh, your breasts are extremely dense and that can obscure the ability to pick up, um, to pick up small lesions. It's true because when you look at this picture, when the breast is entirely comprised of fat, fatty tissue, you're more likely to pick up if there happens to be a small growth here, you're more likely to see it. And then in this, this is probably where, you know, most people are somewhere here, but then you can have someone with extremely dense breasts. As you can see, it's very hard to see. So such a person, you know, the radiologist who's reviewing the mammogram is not sure. They might often call them back for additional pictures or even mammograms to get a better look. But the key is, you know, you have to go. If you don't go, then you don't know where you stand and you can't get the proper testing. Lifestyle factors that have been shown to affect one's risk of developing breast cancer for women and alcohol consumption. So even drinking as much as two drinks a week can slightly increase your risk. Obviously, moderation is key. We're not saying you can't drink alcohol, enjoy life, but you can be knocking back, you know, like a shot of liquor every night or, you know, drinking a bottle of wine every night and that's your normal thing. That is a problem. I think that if that were the case, you need to figure out if you're struggling with some issues and find a different coping mechanism, but definitely reduce alcohol consumption. Um, Smoking also plays a risk. Night shift work, this probably has to do with the altered sleep cycles and higher stress levels and um, cortisol levels for people who constantly work night shift work. But that was something that I found in my read then. Um, factors that do not affect breast cancer that, you know, some people may have talked about, tying your tubes, drinking coffee, um, abortion, those things do not have a role 
chemicals, and I'll come to chemicals in a little bit. So chemicals, specifically chemicals and deodorants. Everyone likes to talk about using deodorants and using non-aluminum-based deodorants. You can do that if, you know, your body allows you to, you know, avoid body odor without using an aluminum-based deodorant. However, most of us do need an aluminum-based deodorant. And but that studies have been inconclusive in finding a direct link to using deodorants and breast cancer causation. So things that can help, obviously, when women are of reproductive age, when you have your children, try to breastfeed for at least a year, six months if you can. If you can't, that's okay. But breastfeeding does provide protective, um, some protection towards developing breast cancer. Staying physically active, especially after menopause, decreasing your body fat if you can, um, is something that can help. But the biggest thing you can do is being aware of your breast. So self-breast awareness. And we had used, we previously said for women, especially, you know, starting from um, you know, teenage years, I would say around age 18 to get in a regular habit of checking your breast. Usually we would say right after your period, do a breast exam at least once a month, make sure that, you know, you don't feel any lumps, you don't see any skin changes, you don't feel anything abnormal. But we've gone away from that. I've actually said to be aware of your breast and you can do your breast exams as often as you want to. You can do multiple times a month, but the key is to know what your breasts usually feel like. And for women, our breasts feel different in different parts of the cycle. So those people who are still having menstrual cycles, right after your periods, that's when your breast is going to be the least dense. And so, which is why initially that was a proposed time to do breast exams because you can feel um, abnormalities a little bit easier. But then as you get closer to ovulation and certainly right before your period, the breast can get a little more tender. And this is driven by the rise in progesterone hormone. Very normal. The breasts feel a little more dense. They feel a little more full. And those are that's a normal change. But if a woman becomes aware of that, they would notice these changes themselves and know not to worry they were to feel something like that. So what is, when is it recommended to do mammograms? If someone is of average risk, so no family history, no previous exposure to radiation, nothing in their medical history that puts them at higher risk for breast cancer, then they could start at age 40. That's what I recommend in my practice. The um, American Tax Force for Prevention says to start at age 50. It's constantly being debated, but honestly, most of us GYNs would recommend to start at age 40 because more and more we're diagnosing breast cancer in younger women. And so for me, preventing lung cancer, even if it costs the healthcare system a little bit more, is worth it. Because for that person who their cancer is found on the mammogram, it could be the difference between a stage zero or stage one cancer to a stage two or stage three cancer where the survival rate goes down. So for anyone who's over 40, please, please, please endeavor to get your first mammogram. And when you do that first mammogram, do not be worried. Oftentimes, the first mammogram, you may get a letter saying that you need to come back for additional images. Don't worry. That is just the radiologist trying to get a baseline of what your breast architecture is. And they need to see what things look like. If there's a certain area of the breast that wasn't properly imaged, they might want to do an ultrasound. Usually it does not mean that there's a problem. Um, but if there is, obviously you will be told. So a lot of times people get that letter saying they need additional images and they worry and they're so anxious. But in most cases, it's the baseline, you often will get a call back like that. But then shortly after that, it tends to be more routine. And it's recommended to get the mammograms. I tell my patients, you know, just try to do yearly if you can, but at the most every two years. I would not exceed two years in doing the mammograms. 
if you happen to be at increased risk, so if you've had any history of chest wall radiation or history of another type of cancer or family history, especially if there's family history of breast cancer developed at a young age, you may need to start younger than 40. So for example, if you had a family member who, God forbid, developed cancer at age 45, that means for you, you would need to start at age 35. And for us in the U.S., you know, your insurance will cover it usually once your doctors provide the right documentation or diagnosis code. So do not be afraid to ask, but it has to be a first degree for, um, relative. So that would be a sister or a mother. Um, if there's some other history, obviously discuss with your doctor and they can determine if you need to start at a younger age or not. And for such patients, it's even more important to do annually. In some cases, they also recommend doing a breast MRI in addition to mammogram. MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, is our gold standard in terms of imaging the body. You get very good um sensitivity and picking up things and abnormalities. It's obviously a very expensive study, so it's not what everyone should do every year. But if certain patients who are at higher risk or if the mammogram looks a certain way or they're at higher risk and have very dense breasts, then breast MRI may be an additional modality to help you know, adequately screen them. So I just put the schematic here just to show different ways we can do breast exams. Ladies, do not be afraid to touch your breast. Please feel all around, make sure you're very comfortable doing this because it could be a difference between life and death. A lot of times people come to me in the office saying, oh, I felt something. Majority of cases, it's nothing to be worried about, but there's been people who've come and unfortunately it was a cancer. And so they found it themselves because maybe they had had their annual exam and their doctor had already examined them for the year and they're picking this up through two or three months down the line after that exam. So it's possible that you can pick things up. And so do not minimize the ability to pay attention to your body and what you can pick up yourself. Other things that have been proposed to image the breast, I think I touched on ultrasound, ultrasonography, breast, MRI, PET scan. This becomes useful, God forbid, when there's a cancer diagnosis. Some people have proposed thermography, which uses infrared radiation. It hasn't been adequately studied, it's not evidence-based. And the reason why the people who propose this want this is because they don't want to be exposed to ionizing radiation from a regular mammogram. A regular mammogram really just uses x-ray imaging to look at the breast. That's the least amount of radiation you'd be exposed in terms of when you compare it to a CT scan. Um, however, it is what we have. It's been adequately studied. It has shown, it's been shown to save lives. And at this point, I, I wouldn't not do it. I, I wouldn't say to do a thermography because who is reviewing the thermography? What is their um what is their experience in reviewing it? What what do cancers look like on thermography? I don't think we know that well enough to say that that would be a reliable way to to screen yourself. There's a question there. What of breast milk after years of breastfeeding? Is, is that normal? Uh, Tosin, if you want to elaborate more on that question. Yes, please. And then I'll come to Kemi after that. Okay. So can I go ahead and talk? Tosin? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, can you hear so, me? Yeah, I can hear you. So if you want to elaborate on the okay, question. So quite, yes. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, doctor. <laughs> after years of breastfeeding, you now notice breast milk again. Why? Why do you see that? Okay, let me just say this. I don't know, after years of breastfeeding, let's say up to eight years, nine years, 11 years. I mean, my son's going to be 12. I'm already 12, going to 13. But I noticed that that was two years ago. I saw breast milk and I was like, mm -hmm. ah, from where? It's not as if I'm pregnant or anything. But it stopped, actually. But I just like wanted to know what if such will happen again or what caused it in the first instance? What was the color? It just looked like breast milk, right? There was no blood in it? Yeah, or, no, there were no abnormal... No, nothing. There was no blood. Yeah. I think no, I, I think no, that in my practice, you 
you you can have that sometimes while it's very unusual and not like a typical response to you know have breast milk but the, it's possible that you have some remnants of the you know when you lactated of the milk and it's just you know kind of make its its way out through the duct i imagine that the time that you saw it was you were squeezing the nipples it wasn't just draining by itself yeah, that was crazy of the people, yes. Usually. Now, if you have spontaneous drainage, that would not be that that would not be normal. I would definitely say, hey, have your doctor check it out. Oftentimes, you know, we will check some hormone levels through your blood work and you know, usually we'll get some imaging. Majority of cases there's nothing found, but you know, you also you always want to have it looked at. But I think you're okay though. What you're reporting is a pretty benign, not uncommon thing. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I'm sure when you move to the inside, I one I can actually ask questions on that. Absolutely. That's the next section. So if there are no other questions, I will keep going through. There's uh, another question here. Okay. I think you're probably going to come to this, but it says any link between oral contraceptives and breast cancer? It's such a big topic. It's constantly talked about all the time. So oral contraceptives are protective against ovarian and uterine cancer. For breast cancer, the jury is out. But the jury is mostly leaning towards saying that there is not a direct link. Um, because if one were to use oral contraception for their pre-reproductive years or before they were ready for childbearing, and then they still had children, they breastfed their children, you know, and they didn't have like late age for their first child, we don't find that to be an issue. So it kind of depends on the situation. Obviously, if there's a family history of a certain type of cancer. Some of the breast cancers, when they're tested, they can have certain receptors that are positive. So estrogen or progesterone receptor positive. There are also other um, receptors that they test for. So if one, God forbid, had a family member who had a certain type of cancer and it was receptor positive, then you know, it would be something to discuss if you were wanting to start an oral contraception with your um, physician to see what would be the best fit for you. But overall, we don't um, see a direct link. Now, if you've had breast cancer, you usually would not be put on oral contraceptives after. Then, can we click a... Kevin, do you have a question? Oh, no, no. It has been answered. It's okay. And then there's a... There's another question here. Can unknown miscarriages cause that late milk coming out? I don't know. I wouldn't know. Because if you never knew that you were pregnant and then had an early miscarriage, then the thought is the hormone levels were never that high to affect the breast. So I would say no. Those are all the questions I have. So I'll make you host so that you can continue with the. Oh, okay. there's a question again here. Um, then my cousin had breast cancer when she was 35 and had her breast removed. Do I need to watch out at all? I think we would have to do a family history to see what degree, you know, how close of a cousin this is. Because in our culture, a lot of people are our cousins who may not have a direct genetic um, relationship with you. But if there is a direct genetic relationship, then I would, um, if she had genetic testing on her cancer, which she should have been diagnosed at a very young age, then you would not, it might be worth you getting tested as well. Okay. My cousin, as in my father's elder brother's daughter. That's how close okay. we are, anyway. Okay. So, yeah. So, direct So, it's the third most common GYN cancer and third most common cause of death when you talk about GYN cancers. But the truth is, we don't see this cancer as much anymore. And so, because of that, it, it's not a very common cause of death in the US. Now, in 
resource poor countries or developing countries where screening may not be as widespread, we still see this. And so um, it, it's definitely worth talking about. And I'm talking about access to increase screening. We know that majority of cervical cancer is caused by the human papillomavirus. It's a virus that people are exposed to through sexual exposure. In 99.7% of cervical cancers, there is this virus. Um, there are more than 200 strains. So a good way to understand when we talk about strains, if anyone has been following, obviously all of us are well aware of the pandemic and the COVID virus and how they keep talking about <laughs> talking about a new strain every few weeks. This is what happens. Viruses are very good at changing their structure and changing their, you know, their, um, their arrangement, their DNA, so to say, their RNA. And so you... There's so many different strains, but not all the strains are problematic. There are low risk strains and there are high risk strains of this virus. And so oftentimes, depending on your age, when you have your pap smear, you may have testing for HPV. And I'll go into more detail about that. Not only can it cause um, cervical cancer, it can also cause um, other cancers of the genital tract as well as oral cancers. And so we're seeing the EMI ear, nose, and throat colleagues are seeing oropharyngeal cancers caused by um, HPV as well, um, as more people engage in oral sex. There's vaginal, vulvar, penile cancers that can come from this, even anal cancers too. So just, just a small picture of the cervix and the vaginal wall and what it looks like. When we do the exam, we might wonder, what are they even looking at down there? So when a GYN is doing your exam, we usually would do an inspection of the outside, the outside of the um, pelvic area. So we want to see that the tissue looks normal. We want to see that there are no lymph nodes. We want to see that there's no unusual swelling or abnormal growths. This is at least how I would do my exam. And then we place a speculum. And when we place the speculum, which is a small metal or plastic instrument, it just allows us to spread the walls of the vagina so you can see the cervix. And so most of us would examine the vagina while we're doing that, look at it, make sure it looks normal, and then also look at the cervix. If one happens to have a cervical cancer that is visible, that is a problem. Majority of cervical cancers are not visible. And then when we do the pap smear, we essentially take a, a spatula and a brush and collect cells from outside of the cervix. And then the brush goes into this opening and collects cells from the inner part of the cervix, the endocervix. Those cells get sent off to the lab. A pathologist looks at them. The cells are supposed to look a certain way. And when there is HPV involved and there are changes within the cells, they start to look different. And there are different levels of degrading and different changes that we see. And then depending on where, you know, an abnormal pap smear falls, the treatment guideline is, is different. And all of this is more technical, but the bottom line is when we're doing an exam, these are the things we're looking for. And typically after the pap smear is collected, then you might notice that your physician or practitioner would place their fingers into the vagina and also feel. So when we do that, we're feeling for the size of the uterus. We're feeling for the ovaries. We want to make sure we don't feel any pelvic masses. So in a normal weight person, you can feel their organs pretty well, but most of us are overweight, myself included. It's harder to feel these things these days. And, you know, but we do the best we can. For um, cervical cancer, we prefer to find it again at stage zero, where it's essentially confined to the lining of the cells of the cervix. And then you have stage one, stage two. Cervical cancer, unlike other cancers, it spreads locally. And when I say locally, it starts within a spot and tends to just spread to the tissue around it. And when it spread, it's, in a, it's a very difficult cancer to, to treat because it essentially destroys everything in its path. And so where this 
cervix is, is a close location to obviously the vagina. And then you have the bladder and then you have the rectum and then you have all the tissue in between. So it, it can be, it's a very terrible cancer, honestly, to treat once it's spread. And so the key as always is to find early and when found early, you can essentially cut it out from the cervix or actually remove the uterus, which includes the cervix and could cure the person because usually if you find it early enough, it hasn't had the time to spread. Some cancers spread very quickly to the lymph nodes and you still worry about chemo, but cervical cancer, sometimes you can. If caught you know, in the early stage, a hysterectomy or a surgery on the cervix to remove the, remove the part of the cervix that contains the abnormal cells can be curative for a patient. So... What are some risk factors? HPV related because human papillomavirus is sexually transmitted. So early onset of sexual activity, multiple sexual partners, having a high respect sexual partner where you yourself are okay, but your partner you know, is out there, you know, he or she is in the streets. They could bring back stuff to you, unfortunately. Um, and then you have, you know, previous exposure, the STIs that goes with sexual behavior as well. For some reason, early age at first birth, has a relationship. And I think it has to do with, again, sexual behavior. If you're having sex at an early age, you unfortunately could have an unintended pregnancy. Most people who are younger than 20 aren't planning to get pregnant. And so that's where that comes in. And then immunosuppression, this is big, right? HIV population, um, because of the nature of the HIV virus and how it affects our bodies, it can suppress your immune system and then allows the HPV to proliferate more than it needs to. And that can increase your risk of having um, those changes and cervical cancer. Non-HPV related, everything kind of ties to each other, but cigarette smoking is a big one. I mean, smoking cigarettes does not nothing good. I'm yet to find a positive. Obviously, people like nicotine and it relaxes them, but really in terms of your health, there is nothing good that it does. So if one has such a habit, if you could please start by cutting back, it would help your overall health. Non-white race has been a risk factor, lower socioeconomic status, which again ties in with some of these other HPV related factors or contraceptive use. For this one, there has been some um, relationship. Circumcision for those who are not circumcised. So most of us in our culture, this is a mostly Nigerian crowd, um, um, males are circumcised, but in cultures where circumcision is not done, the uncircumcised penis can have a higher predilection for HPV and such, you may see more warts and a higher risk of um, HPV-related change. Signs and symptoms. Early cancer, usually you don't feel or see anything. Um, sometimes we see something on an exam and usually we would take a little piece of it and send it to, to the lab to be tested. But other things to look for, you know, if you notice that you were having irregular bleeding, if you were having bleeding after menopause, if you're having bleeding after sex, those are things to look out for. An abnormal discharge or order, look for that. Advanced disease tends to come with a very abnormal order, pelvic pain, pelvic pressure, difficulty with um, urination, a passing stool. But oftentimes, at this point, people know that they have a problem. Um, so what can we do? There's a vaccine, and this is the only vaccine that prevents cancer. However, this vaccine also has a lot of political drama surrounding it, at least in the U.S. I look at it like this. Your child is getting vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella. They're getting vaccinated for hepatitis B. This is just another vaccine. But what you're doing is you're protecting them against the different strains, the high-risk strains that have been identified of the HPV virus. So male and female should be vaccinated because our girls are not being exposed to HPV by themselves. They're having sex with boys. And so if the boys are vaccinated, 
then they're also equally protected. And maybe we can, down the line, make this thing a thing of the past and eventually suppress those high-risk strains enough that it doesn't cause cancer anymore. The vaccination has also been extended to initially, ideally you do it age 11 or 12. And the reason for this is to do it well before their first sexual exposure. Obviously, we don't want our children to be engaged in sex early and to delay intercourse for as late as possible. Um, but you want to do it in that age group. And if you don't do it, they can still be vaccinated up until age 45. It goes for males and females. This is not just a female problem. Regular screening with cervical pap smears and pelvic exams, it's recommended once a year. Um, if you are sexually active, it's also recommended to have sexual um, disease testing at least once a year. If you're in a stable monogamous relationship, you may not have to do it as frequently, but at least having your pap smears, having your exams done um, is useful. If you smoke, please try not to smoke. If you decide to have multiple sexual partners, at least use condoms. Condoms do not completely protect against HPV because of the way that the virus is, but I think it would limit in some ways. But the best thing to do is not to be sexually promiscuous. Okay. So that was my, that's the end of the cervical cancer section. So I'm happy to take any questions. I don't see any questions in the chart. Great. All right, so, I'm sorry, I have a quick question. Sure. Um, hey, so how often are you supposed to get a pap smear. So new recommendations came out that we can space them out. So between ages 21 and 30, 21 and 29, you can do every three years, once or three years. It depends on your previous history, depends on if you've had normal pap smears leading up to that time. From age 30 to um, 50, yeah, 65, you can do every five years, but no, no one does that. You know, we don't wait that long. Um, most of us will still recommend, most of us being most of us GYNs, will still recommend at least one to three years. And I give that range because you can decide with, on your own and with your doctor, depending on your, on your risk factors and depending on your sexual behavior, if you need to be screened more frequently. If you're having new sexual partners or your partner is having new sexual partners, then you should probably do it once a year. If you are not having new sexual partners, you're not completely monogamous relationship, you, and you've always had normal pap smears, you could space it out to every um, three years, but you wouldn't find any of us doing every five years as the the NCCN was recommending. Does that okay, thank you. Yes, because I, I know it it's ranges between the one to three years. I was just trying to kind of get a clarification on that. But yeah, that helps. Thank you. It looks like Ma Peggy, Lee. Oh, Peggy Lee. Yeah. Mommy, what do you want to ask? Okay, uh, my question is, when should one stop mammogram screening, especially after many years of negative results? That's a great question. Um, so the recommendation is to stop at age 75. Now, with older age, also comes with um, other potentially more pressing health issues. So I usually tell my patients, if you're a young 75-year-old and you're mostly in good health, you can screen up until 75. And you can even screen past 75 if you want. Um, but these are screening tests. They're not supposed to be burdensome. If you have other pressing health issues, focus on those at first. But yes, 75 is the recommended age to stop. Okay. Should it be yearly or every two years? One to two years. You can skip a little bit, but I would say not more than two. Okay. Then the uh, pap smear, oh, sorry. Yes. Cervical screening. Mm -hmm. That one, how often? So 
your age group, I would probably say every three years and you would stop at 65. So, you know, the reason we recommend stopping at 65 is the HPV virus, in most cases, the changes in the cervix caused by the virus take years to progress. It's not a sudden. Now, there are some strains that we're seeing some, how would you say, very aggressive high-risk strains. But majority of the high-risk strains, there is a period of years where you go from a, a normal path to an abnormal path, and then the different stages of abnormality become, before it becomes cancer. And that's why there's a range of three years. Like if you're getting screened every three years, you're more likely to pick up a problem. And by age 65, most people are not necessarily having new sexual partners who would then expose them to a new strain of the HPV, or they're not, and because they're not having new sexual partners or even necessarily having regular sex, obviously you can have sex for as long as you want to, the the your chance of developing a cancer at that beyond age 65 and then having that cancer be the cause of your death is very unlikely so by 65 you can stop screening for cervical cancer if one has had a hysterectomy they can also stop screening but i say that a little guarded because if you've had a hysterectomy and you were younger than 65 and you're potentially going to have new sexual partners, you can still continue to screen. But personally, I put a hard stop at 65. Now, if, if one has had abnormal paps leading up to 65, you don't stop screening because you only stop screening if everything is normal. If there's something that needs to be followed up or watched, then you don't stop. You don't say, hey, I'm 65, I don't go anymore. No, if your last one was abnormal, you need to continue going until the problem has resolved. Okay, thank you. All right. There's a question on the chat. And the question is, um, severe pains after period, does, does, um, does it mean anything, please? Great question. Severe pains after your period or during your period? After After the period. I don't think that necessarily indicates uh, a type of cancer, but if you haven't seen a doctor or had an exam, I would recommend you go. That would be more indicative of, um, Maybe an issue in the pelvis, most commonly fibroids, especially if you have heavy periods that go with it. Um, but that would involve, you know, talking to your physician, having an exam. For for women, your periods are, well, the uterus, based on where it's anatomically located, is in close proximity with the, the bowels and the GI system. So there's a lot of overlap between the nerves of the gastrointestinal and the um, pelvic organs. And so if someone had a diet that was less than perfect, especially leading up to the periods, and I say less than perfect because that could mean different things to different people, but essentially a diet that is very high in carbs or processed sugars, you may find that your periods are going to be more painful and more heavy. You may deal with a lot more bloating. Um, because those highly processed sugars are very difficult for the body to process and creates more inflammation. And some of that inflammation carries over to the way you um, sense and experience your period. So I often start with, how are your, what's your diet? Like if, if I have a totally normal exam where I cannot find an, an anatomical issue to explain the patient's problem, then we talk about lifestyle changes. Are you consuming a lot of alcohol? Are you keeping a healthy diet? And a lot of times when people make proper changes, some of those menstrual um, symptoms decrease, especially if there is no other problem. But this is more of a specific GYN kind of an office evaluation type question. Yeah. She said checked already, no fibroid, pelvis. pelvis is clean and no infection either. Well, that's great. Then I would look at the lifestyle and see if there are any changes you can make. Um, studies have shown that women who keep a healthy diet and exercise regularly actually have less menstrual pain. 
if you've done all of that and it fails, then there is place for medications specifically or contraceptives to help or even non-hormonal medicine that may help your pain. And someone's asking, stop having sex. Uh, Sheon is asking, stop having sex from 50 years. Does it have a negative effect? The question is why? <laughs> no, it's, it, that, that is your own personal choice. Uh, if the vagina is an organ where if you don't lose it, it can get a little more difficult to reuse it. So after 50, um, the, there are some natural changes in the vagina that we see because of the decrease, especially if one goes through menopause. So you may have, you know, decrease in the estrogen, which can make lubrication an issue. It can make sex a little more painful. And so if one chooses not to engage in intercourse after 50, there are no negative effects, except that, you know, if you were to try to resume intercourse, it could potentially be a lot more painful. And just one more question to throw in, this is from me. So uh, you also mentioned that there is a risk for rectal um, uh, anal cancer and oral cancer. Um, uh, is this just screened when you go to your GI to get a colonoscopy? And what things should you watch out for if, you, if, if you are, you're having symptoms of oral cancer? So it's a tough one because unlike these other cancers that have been established, I don't think the medical society as a group we know yet. Uh, I think if you asked the ENT, they would probably say that, you know, we should screen more. We should probably do what's akin to a pap in the throat to check for HPV or screen for HPV in the throat. But I, I'm not sure how you would do that or even implement that. But if somebody engaged in anal sex, then there are anal pap smears that are performed and they could have that done. Um, if some, and, and, I, and I think there may be some that are done in the throat. If the common way that I know a throat cancer would present would usually be similar to maybe pain with eating or difficulty swallowing, um, especially difficulty swallowing, just difference in your feeding habits or feeling a lump in your throat that you can't quite explain. Usually that would be the telltale sign. But a colonoscopy would get the rectal cancer, but I don't think we have anything established as screening guidelines for oral cancers. Thank you. Are there any protective barriers that someone can use when engaging in oral sex or? There is the, um, the dental, uh, like a uh, oral condom that is out there. Honestly, this is a, a kind of a personal sexual practices question. Um, nothing that I am, I could say specifically, Hey, go this one. Exactly. I know that there are some things that are there. Usually the ad adult stores may have, and you can, you know, do some internet browsing, it can help to an extent, certainly helps to prevent the more common STDs like gonorrhea, chlamydia, because those can be found in the throat as well. Right. Thank you. Well, someone says, uh, is asking how long does, sorry, maybe uh, scarf tissue pain last after, oh, I think scar tissue pain last after a hysterectomy. And there's a second question. So is anal sex safe? Scar tissue pain. It's a tough one. When, when you have surgery, or even if you have something as small as a cut, or bruise, we all heal differently. And so when you have had a hysterectomy and it sounds like it's taking years for you to heal, it's unfortunate, but it shouldn't. Usually most people are back to their baseline, I would say six months to a year after a hysterectomy. So if you're having pain beyond that, it's always good to investigate further and make sure there are no new problems. And if there aren't any new problems, then, and it's thought to be that your symptoms are due to scar tissue, there's not really anything that can be done about it because even if you went in and took down the scar tissue by doing surgery, it's likely to reform. And it, it just, it's one of the things that comes with the risk of undergoing surgery. 
But I, I think that um, depending on where the scar tissue is, depending on where the pain is, maybe if you elaborated a little bit more, I could help. Um, in terms of anal sex, is anal sex safe? S- same with vaginal sex. I mean, we have sex because, you know, sex is meant to be enjoyed, but it's you are going to be exposed if you're having multiple partners to, you know, sexually transmitted infections. And so you make it safe. That would be my answer to that question. So someone, someone's asking if growing coliform bacilli from a vaginal swarm, is it a serious infection or STD? So if you're referring to bacteria overgrowth, it's not sexually transmitted. It's it's a change in your vaginal flora. The vagina naturally contains lots of different strains of bacteria, same as, you know, the GI tract. And so all the bacteria exist in harmony with each other. Is there is an odor that could present as an abnormal discharge or an odor. And if you're having that screened and tested for the usual STDs and you had a swab like that, you, that didn't show that one of the typical STDs then. If you're referring to bacterial overgrowth or bacterial vaginosis, it's not sexually transmitted now. I think the last comment here is the pain is in the abdominal area of the body. This is from Ogochufu. Okay. This is a reference to the to the scar tissue. The scar tissue, yeah. Um, you know, the the abdomen contains multiple organs. You have your bowels. You have, you have um, small and large bowel, and we all heal differently. Sometimes you go in to do surgery, and you know people have a lot of scar tissue, and other times they have no scar tissue, even though they've had multiple surgeries. You can't have pain because your intestines are now kind of stuck in areas where they weren't supposed to be stuck, um, and so that could create pain. But honestly. Assuming there are no masses or anything that's been found, then I don't think that um, there may be necessarily too much to do. Those are all the questions I had. Okay. So we will move on. So ovarian cancer is another one I want to talk about. So also in the GI, in the GYN system, you have your ovaries, which is what allows us to reproduce. The ovaries are made up of follicles, a woman, or a girl or a baby girl is born with all the eggs and follicles they will ever have. And as they grow, some of these follicles dwindle and, you know, kind of become less active. And by the time they start having children, even though you're born with millions, you know, numbers drop drastically. And then by age 35, the numbers drop even more. And, you know, while you still have the follicles and the quote unquote ends there, not all of them may be healthy, which is why, you know, women have a biological clock, so to say, as opposed to men who once they've gone through puberty and are in their reproductive years and beyond, they will make a fresh supply of sperm, which fertilizes the egg every three months or so. So ovarian cancer is cancer that arises within the cells of the ovary. Sometimes cancers arise within the fallopian tube, which is the organ right beside the ovary that carries the egg during ovulation into the fallopian tube and then if you were to have sex at the right time and the sperm travels and the egg and the sperm meet within the tube it's fertilized and brings it back to being planted within the uterus so sometimes cancers of fallopian tubes are also lumped together with ovarian cancer the fallopian tube is a very small organ is very difficult to see on imaging and so it's understandable that a lot of the cancers are lumped together plus they're in very close proximity and there's a lot of studies actually showing that some ovarian cancer actually arises within the ends of the fallopian tube so what are the symptoms of ovarian cancer 
The symptoms, unfortunately, are vague. This is a tough cancer because most times, by the time it's diagnosed, it's already at advanced stage. And so it's also a cancer that is more common in with increasing age. And so we ask that people watch themselves. If you have unusual vague symptoms that are not resolving or not going away, please discuss it with your doctor. Please um, undergo some investigations because it could be life-saving. So some of the things we see most importantly is feeling full easily, early satiety, bloating, um, stomach upset, frequent urination, swelling in the abdomen, uh, unexpected or unintended weight loss could sometimes be indications, but honestly, the the symptoms can be vague. And then sometimes people have advanced cancers with without any symptoms other than just a, abdominal pain, which abdominal pain is so, is so vast and vague, but that may be the only presenting symptom. Different stages, I'm sorry this slide is a little blurry, but essentially stage one, if you're catching the drift, usually when it's confined to the organ in question, it's still stage one. If it spreads outside of the organ in question to surrounding organs around stage two, for ovarian cancer, the way it's staged, if it spreads, you know, kind of in the abdomen, outside of the pelvis is stage three. And then once it's spread out of the abdomen, so you're talking in the lungs or distant tissue, then it's stage four. Majority of ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is found at the stage three stage. What are the risk factors? Older age, late menopause, early menarche, which is a term for having seen your first period early. Usually the age that is used is less than 12. Sometimes we see young girls getting their periods at 11, nine, which is just crazy. But, you know, that would need to be watched. Never having had children, so not with parity. Um, endometriosis. Endometriosis is a condition where the lining of the uterus is found outside of the uterus, usually either within the ovaries or fallopian tubes, so that every month when the lining sheds and you have a period, those areas also shed and you can have cysts, you can have scar tissue form in the pelvis. Um, it's it's a very difficult, for the patients who have it, it's very debilitating, but you know, they're treatment options too. The key is to find it. I'm doing a talk. Go, thank you. <laughs> um, pelvic radiation. We also have genetic factors such as the BRCA mutation, which is closely tied to breast cancer. There's also Lynch syndrome, which is another cancer that is tied to ovarian and uterine cancer. These are mutations that can be passed on from families to families, and they're dominant mutations, which means that you can only have one copy of the gene mutation and still manifest the disease. Other risk factors is hormone replacement after menopause. So again, the choice of using hormones after menopause or perimenopausal to help the transition to menopause, you know, is very individualized. And should everyone be on hormone replacement? No. But is there a benefit for it? Absolutely. And so there is some association, especially with um, breast cancer sometimes. And so, you know, obesity is another risk factor. The reason we mention obesity is because when your body is comprised of an excessive amount of fat tissue, 
those fat tissue cells can also secrete hormone cells that then are similar to estrogen and so would act on the ovaries in the same way that the usual estrogen would act on the ovaries. And I'm trying to explain this in the least technical way as possible. And so that can create a situation where your ovaries do not release an egg every month on ovulation. And that problem, if you're in a chronic state of anovulation, can increase your risk for ovarian cancer and other um, uh, ovarian cancer. Polycystic ovarian syndrome had been mentioned. Usually if a woman has this condition, it can create that state of anovulation and um, potentially increase their risk of ovarian cancer, but not, not really. Breast cancer, family history of breast cancer, obviously if there's the breast cancer and they have that BRCA mutation, that mutation can cause ovarian cancer as well. But not everyone who has BRCA mutation would develop ovarian cancer. A lot of them would. And so if one has had that breast cancer, oftentimes the oncologist would recommend a prophylactic or, or a preventive ovarian um, ovary, ovary, ovary removal for them. So oophorectomy to help decrease your risk of developing ovarian cancer down the line. And the reason they do that is, again, you don't have ways to screen for ovarian cancer that are established. Any of the screening modalities have not been necessarily tested rigorously to show that they work. And so because of that, you want to prevent this cancer as much as you can, especially if someone already has a risk, um, a risk factor for it. Some years down the line, talc in baby powder made the headlines about causing potential ovarian cancer. There are some lawsuits against, you know, Johnson & Johnson. It's, the jury's out. Some people, you know, some of the countries, I think Canada and the UK issued statements, you know, against talc use. And this is talc use in the perineum. So it's more common in the older population where the women would put, you know, baby powder down there to make it smell fresh. I mean, there's no need for any of that. You could, I would say, skip it because at the end of the day, talc is a chemical. And while we're seeing a lot of these cancers now, granted, humans are living longer, technology has evolved, medical care has evolved so much that we're picking up things maybe we would not have picked up. But we're also living in an environment where there are a lot of synthetic you know, chemicals that are being, that we're ingesting. And so whatever you can limit on your own, I would advise to limit. Okay. The great use, again, cigarettes don't do anything good for you. It's been somewhat linked to ovarian cancer. You know, you can. A big one is fertility treatment. So these are for our moms who are trying to conceive or had a hard time to motherhood and had to have, you know, IVF or treatment or different um, treatment with fertility drugs. You're exposed to a high amount of hormones during that period. And so the thought is that excessive exposure would have caused problems down the line. Who knows? But the studies haven't proven it yet. Things that do protect your risk of ovarian cancer. Um, having your ovaries and fallopian tube removed. Now, why would you have it removed? This becomes possible if somebody had that BRCA mutation or another type of genetic, hereditary genetic um, cancer mutation. By doing having the ovaries removed or the fallopian tubes removed before it's even had a chance to develop a cancer, then they've protected themselves from, from that. Protective factors, having the ovaries and the tubes removed, using oral contraceptives, having the tubes tied, tubal ligation, if you've completed childbearing, having your uterus um, removed from a hysterectomy. Most of us now, during a hysterectomy, we would remove the fallopian tubes as well. We don't always remove the ovaries because 
you know, the ovaries do provide a lot of benefit. And so we don't take them out. But to prevent a woman from developing ovarian cancer, and because we know that the tubes can't really do anything or function well if the uterus is not there, we usually take them out during the hysterectomy. Breastfeeding, um, and the reason breastfeeding is also a protective factor. And so what happens during breastfeeding is the certain hormones are released from the brain that suppress the ovaries and suppress activity within the ovaries. And so that's how it becomes protective of ovarian cancer because during those months of breastfeeding, then you don't have as much cell proliferation and it can help decrease a woman's risk of ovarian cancer. Having had multiple children, again, you think that the period of pregnancy when the ovaries are somewhat suppressed, as well as the period of breastfeeding after the pregnancy, just two combined can keep the ovaries, which is the same way oral contraceptives work in preventing ovarian cancer, is that the oral contraceptives suppress the ovarian function and um, can then help to prevent cancer. So for this, there is no established screening guideline. If there is a family history of certain cancers, most times if you see your GYN, if they're comfortable doing it, they can do hereditary cancer mutation screening. There are lots of panels now that are becoming more and more easily available. It may come at a cost because it depends on your insurance coverage, or you can also elect to see a genetics counselor. So a genetics counselor is somebody whose job and training is to look into your family history and they would go, they would take a very detailed history. They try to establish if there are any links. So my sister who had mentioned earlier about her cousin with the breast cancer, it would not be a bad idea to to go see someone like that if you want. And oftentimes, after your discussion with them, if they feel that you would benefit from any of the, you know, gene panel testing, they usually would order it. And then if, God forbid, one were a carrier for a certain mutation that has been linked to certain cancers, then you can have some dedicated screening for that specific cancer. All right. Questions? There is a question here. Uh, I'm GYN disorders that are more common in women of African ancestry. GYN disorders that are more common in women of African ancestry. Yeah. That is a great question. Um, for that, I would say probably fibroids. Fibroids is something that we we deal with kind of disproportionately. And um, that would be the top one. I don't know if they had a specific one that they just wanted to know in general. Um, let me see, ask that question. Let me see, is there a specific uh, pathology that you, you have in mind? Thanks, Dr. Lambuchi. Um, I was wondering, um, nice, good talk, by the way. Um, PCO, P, PCOS is one I had in mind. You know, there's increased incidence of uh, metabolic syndrome of PCD. And I wondered, is PCOS also disproportionate? I mean, at a higher incidence affecting people of uh, African ancestry. I haven't seen that in practice and not in my reading. You know, it may seem that way if you come across people and the, maybe the reason why we may see it more is the, ob the obesity epidemic somewhat and which ties back in with, you know, PCOS, yes, everything comes from our genes. So maybe there's a genetic predisposition and when you put in lifestyle factors which do not help your genes, then you're more likely to develop a condition. I, I wouldn't say that PCOS affects us disproportionately, but I do, I see it in all populations of my patients. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But fibroids, I would say, um, for sure. And for people of African descent, unfortunately, our fibroids tend to be more symptomatic. There was a study that years, years ago that looked at autopsies of women and they found that 70 to 80% had fibroids. However, 
to some extent, majority of them were probably never knew they had fibroids. But the people that I see seeking care, having problems from their fibroids or suffering, painful, heavy periods, anemia, you know, infertility, you know, go back home to Nigeria, you know, definitely African descent for some reason. We we have, uh, we're more affected by fibroids. And just for the uh, ovarian cancer um, part of things, um, if someone has symptoms like you've described, um, given our limited access to um, modalities like CT and other imaging studies that people can do, would, would an ultrasound just be suffice to to make that diagnosis? No, it's not enough. It's, it's a starting point. So if a hypothetical patient saw me with vague symptoms, they're postmenopausal, they're reporting early satiety, bloating that we cannot explain. If I do an ultrasound and I can see her ovaries reliably and they're normal, then usually we're okay. But if there's some type of abnormality within the ovaries, we usually would obtain what's called a CA-125 is a cancer tumor marker test. And if that happens not to be normal, then obviously they get additional testing. If everything is normal and the patient continues to have symptoms, then oftentimes your primary care will get a CT scan. Because not only are you looking for ovarian cancer, another big cancer that doesn't really have any screening modality or um, that tends to present at advanced stage is pancreatic cancer. It also tends to present with very vague symptoms initially, and which oftentimes when it's found, you know, it's found at advanced stage. So usually the PCPs are very good about we're looking further if the patient continues to have issues and the GYN workup has been negative. So um, given the scenario that someone has the symptoms in Nigeria and then goes and, and gets an ultrasound but and maybe gets a CA-125, everything looks normal but still continues to have symptoms, then... then I would get a CT if they can. Right. Thank yeah. you. And then someone's asking, can fibroid put a person to at risk for uterine cancer? I think you were coming over to uterine cancer. Yes. That was my next topic. But in short, fibroids are benign. So the short answer is no. There is a certain type of uh, strain or type of, you know, fibroid or uterine cancer that can arise from malignant fibroid cells, but it's very rare that that would be the case. And there are certain things to look for if a person had fibroids and started to have additional symptoms that would make us worry about that. So uterine cancer is the last cancer that I wanted to cover in the talk. So again, this cancer affects the uterus. Everybody knows the uterus is the womb. That's where the baby is carried. The cervix is the part of the is the gates, it's like the opening into the uterus. So when you're in labor, they say you're, you're two centimeters dilated, you're ten, that's the cervix. But the baby is in the uterus, that's where the placenta is. Obviously, it's a very vital organ. When you have your period every month, the lining of the uterus sheds. Majority of uterine cancer arises from the lining of the uterus, so endometrial cancer. But there's also myometrial cancer, which is lyomyosarcoma, which is a type of cancer that can arise from a malignant fibroid cell. There's also uterine sarcoma, which those cancers arise from the muscle portion of the uterus. Stage one is confined within the lining. Stage two is now a little bit, it starts from the lining. This is, this picture is more for endometrial cancer. So it starts within the lining, but has now spread into the muscle. Stage three, you have it outside of the uterus, like in the pelvis or the ovaries. And then stage four, distant organs, especially the lungs. Risk factors for this one is age, 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 age. We tend to see it in older people, postmenopausal women. Unfortunately, African-American race, obesity, or cystic ovarian syndrome, not having regular ovulations or having suffered regular irregular ovulation during their um, reproductive years, hereditary cancer syndrome, specifically the Lynch syndrome, which causes uterine cancer and colon cancer. 
Um, tamoxifen use. Tamoxifen is a medication that is often given for chemoprophylaxis, essentially for prevention after one has been treated for breast cancer. Oftentimes, the oncologist will have you take this medicine for about five years after you've been treated for breast cancer. But we know that the way the medicine works, even though it suppresses the breast tissue and suppresses your you know, recurrence of breast cancer, it can affect the uterus differently, specifically the lining of the uterus. And so it can cause extra growth or excess growth of tissue and and that can increase the risk of uterine cancer. So usually our patients who are on it, they're carefully counseled. If they're having unusual bleeding water and tamoxifen, they need to seek care properly. And most of us GYNs are very good about, you know, doing the investigation to check to for being postmenopausal and being on hormone replacement. So if you happen to be having menopausal symptoms like hot flushes or um difficulty with mood, concentration, you know, issues with intercourse, poor lubrication. Sometimes you can benefit by having estrogen, but oftentimes you also have to have progesterone as well to balance it out. Just giving estrogen by itself, which would make you feel good and bring back all those benefits, carries a risk of uterine cancer. This is rare, um, but estrogen secreting tumors. So if the ovary happens to have a tumor within the ovary, that's just secretes estrogen. You can have the estrogen levels be exponentially high, which then ties back into causing extra growth within the lining. And that would um, increase a person's risk of urine cancer. So unlike ovarian cancer, 75 to 90% of patients with urine cancer will have symptoms. And so what are these symptoms? How can we not ignore them? Because if I've achieved anything with this talk is to really just um, educate on what to look out for. A lot of times we minimize things. If you're a menopausal and you're having abnormal bleeding, and this is a reminder for myself too, you know, when something is off, usually, yes, you don't have to run straight to the doctor the minute something is off. You observe it. If it's not getting better or it's not going away, then you get the proper care. And if, you know, you've had proper care, it's still not, you know, resolving, then we have to look a little bit more. And usually if you have a caring physician, either primary care, Joanna, whoever you're seeing, and you keep complaining of the same thing over and over again, they tend not to dismiss you. They will look for things. And usually if we've checked everything we can check and we can't check anymore, then we stop. But oftentimes we will try to check and start thinking outside of the box if, you know, common symptoms are not leading to the common diagnosis. So for this one, the number one symptom is abnormal uterine bleeding. Even though uterine cancer is found mostly in postmenopausal years, you can also see it in perimenopause, so in the years around menopause. And menopause, for reference, in the U.S., in the U.S. population, the average age is 50, 51. Um, some go through it later, some go through it earlier. Nonetheless, the definition, if it's been 12 months without a period and you are in that right age group, we would consider you menopausal. If you have exceeded 12 months without a period and all of a sudden you now start bleeding, you need to let someone know about it. Majority of the time, it's nothing. But again, 90% of patients who have uterine cancer would have had symptoms, often symptoms that they ignored or dismissed. So that's where paying attention to your body and having asking the right questions, having things looked at is so, so, so important. So postmenopausal bleeding, bleeding after menopause, as I just described, if you're bleeding and it's been 12 months after your period has ended and you start bleeding again, I need to know about it. An abnormal pap smear sometimes can become the kind of indication of abnormal cells within the uterus. We tend to see this in younger patients, but also older patients. 
if God forbid the other person was developing urine cancer, you know, that sometimes you can have an abnormal pap bleeder indication. So I put abnormal bleeding, abnormal bleeding, I can't emphasize this enough. Bleeding, we all know what normal bleeding is. And if you're not sure what is normal, please discuss with your doctor. But oftentimes this cancer would present with some type of a normal bleeding. And usually when caught early, it's easily treatable by a hysterectomy. And oftentimes by hysterectomy alone without chemo, chemotherapy or radiation. So that's why it's so important to pay attention to those early signs, get the proper testing and, and then hopefully arrive at the diagnosis. But that being said, if you have postmenopausal bleeding, it does not mean that you have uterine cancer. Majority of postmenopausal bleeding is caused by benign non-cancerous things. Usually it's a polyp, which is a small fleshy growth within the lining of the uterus. Sometimes it's because the lining of the uterus has become so thin from the lack of estrogen that people bleed. Or sometimes we can't even find a reason. But typically, if one presents with abnormal bleeding, we often will start with a pelvic ultrasound. We'll assess the lining. We often will do a biopsy. So getting cells from the inside of the uterus. And typically between those two things, we can usually narrow down the diagnosis. So that you have postmenopausal bleeding does not mean you have uterine cancer. In my practice, usually it's a polyp. And on rare occasions, it is the cancer. But I will tell you for my women who got from it, who have had the, you know, who have unfortunately diagnosed with urine cancer, they had months, sometimes even years of symptoms that were ignored or dismissed. And it's unfortunate. So again, for this one, there's no established screening test, but because there's often symptoms, it's almost a gift. So because you have symptoms to look for, then if those symptoms are worked up initially or at the initial stage of presentation, we're more likely to pick up the problem early enough before it becomes a bigger problem. And so for this, my point that I wanted to make is with this slide is, with unusual bleeding, just seek prompt care, especially bleeding after menopause, just seek prompt care. Um, there are lots of studies and there's evidence that if one has or a patient carries the Lynch syndrome mutation or the Cowden syndrome mutation, these are inherited cancer gene mutations, they can benefit from having their uterus removed before it has a chance to grow a cancer. Um, oral contraceptive use, this ties back into the risk factor for polycystic ovarian syndrome or an ovulation. If someone has a chronic state of not ovulating regularly and hence not having monthly, regular monthly periods, being on oral contraceptives can help regulate their periods so they line and sheds regularly. Because for a woman, if you are not on hormones or being treated or on some type of birth control and you're not having regular periods, that needs to be investigated. We need to find a reason why. Usually, it's something along the lines of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And my preference is that you have your, you shed your lining regularly. Even if you don't have a regular period every month, the goal would be to shed the lining at least every three months. That way, you don't have a period that the lining becomes extra overgrowth, extra, like highly proliferated, that you don't have a chance to develop cancer cells within the lining. Okay, well, that's the end. So I practiced out in Snellville, Georgia. This is our location. And um, yeah, that was all I wanted to share. I'm happy to take any questions. Well, thank you so much, Ujib. Um That was really wonderful. Um, and um, there's, there's a question here um, that I'll ask. It's uh, coming from Shane Wu. It says, a 49-year-old lady that menstruates twice a year, is it premenopausal? Probably, yeah. Because she's in the right age group. 
Um, we still wouldn't say she's gone through menopause, but it sounds like her periods are now skipping months. So eventually what would happen is she would have that last period and then she doesn't get it again. But once it's been 12 months of no periods, and it could happen at age 49, it could happen at age 55, then we consider that she's gone through menopause. For that, I'm not concerned. Any other questions? I think the biggest question for, especially folks back home is, you know, in resource limited areas, you know, how can you access care for to get diagnosed or and be treated for, for things like this. So, so, so back home, I think the hardest cancer and that we haven't done a good job of screening or the two, we, it's getting better though. Awareness for pap smears and also awareness for breast cancer because those have established screening guidelines and we know that early screening, early de detection saves lives. For uterine, ovarian, it's tough because you don't necessarily have screening guidelines. But if someone presents with symptoms, then they, they get worked up for it. And so pap smear is becoming more available. And I think that hopefully we can get to a point where we can implement screening guidelines where from age 21, which is the first time to get the pap smear, regardless of, you know, age of sexual debut, we do recommend doing the pap smear from age 21. So if you have a younger girl who's had sex, younger than 21, we don't necessarily do a pap smear. We can do SCD testing. However, if they do resume, they do have their first intercourse after 21, we still will do a pap smear at 21. And we have HPV vaccines in Nigeria to test it out. That, that would be great. I would, I think that if you can still be vaccinated and, and the vaccines, people become disappointed when they see me sometimes and they say, well, I've been vaccinated. How come I still have an abnormal pap or how come I still tested positive for HPV? This virus mutates so easily. There's more than 200 strains. The vaccine covers, I believe, nine strains. And these are the nine high risk strains. So these are the strains that are more likely to cause um, cervical cancer. So it's not going to protect you from every single one of them, but in terms of risk profile, I mean, you're getting protected for the most important ones. So I think that for our children, especially, to keep them on the vaccine schedule and have them be vaccinated at the right time. Oh, so I want to ask this question. Um, so for postmenopausal women, do you worry if yearly exams still dictate fibroid on the uterus? Great question. So fibroids after menopause, they don't shrink. Contrary to popular knowledge, where people feel like, oh, after fibroids, the fibroids, after menopause, the fibroids will melt away. No, they don't. They just kind of stay there. They may decrease in size a little bit, but they stay there. We don't worry about fibroids after menopause. If a woman doesn't have abnormal bleeding and they don't have an increased growth in the size of the fibroids, most OBGYNs may not get regular ultrasounds anymore on the on the uterus to check for the fibroids after menopause. But if you had symptoms, oftentimes we would just, you know, check one. And if for some reason, you came in and you said, well, I feel like my fibroids are growing. I feel like my abdomen is growing. Again, the same reason I'm looking for ovarian cancer, I'll be looking at the uterus too. And if, let's say, you were known to have fibroids that are three centimeters, and all of a sudden they're now six centimeters, they should not be growing because fibroids are fed by the estrogen effect from your ovaries. In the menopausal state, you don't have that estrogen effect. So why should they be growing? And so if they happen to be growing like that, often we would recommend estrogen. I know a woman who had her abdomen still bloated post-surgery. What could be responsible for that? Her abdomen still bloated post-surgery. How far post-surgery are we talking? Uh, this is a question. <laughs> <laughs> because immediately post-op, that's that's fine, honestly. You, know, you can have, you know, the process of the surgery and the way the anesthetic medications can affect the body. You can have a period of bloating that eventually goes down. Most times for hysterectomy, we expect that most surgical changes should have resolved by six weeks post-op. But if it's, you know, beyond six weeks, again, we all heal differently. Sometimes people take a little bit longer to heal. 
that's something to to to, to, to discuss with, with their physician. Two years after fibroid surgery. Yeah, I think that's something to talk to your doctor about and find out. Yeah, there. or or it could just be adipose. It could just be fat tissue. Like I don't know how big this person is, but sometimes it's it's unfortunately still adipose tissue. Okay, All right. that was that was really great. Um, these are heavy topics, but I think awareness is very important. So yeah. on a lighter note, just um just um just to get to know you a little bit better because not everyone knows you here. Um, right. Um, what what things um associated with your culture brings you joy. Uh, what things do you do you do that you think back home? I wish I was back home right now. That brings you joy and happiness. Probably Christmas time. Christmas time in Nigeria is a is a joy, and I think just the way we're caring as as a culture. We some may see it as being nosy, but I think we mean well. When you have someone from back home asking how you're doing or checking on you, especially family members, most actually truly care. And so, you know, during Christmas time and being able to see everyone again that you may just see once a year, spending time with cousins, I do miss that. And I wish that, you know, we could have a chance to do that again, even though the, the said cousins and extended families, everyone is spread out all over, all over the world now. But still, that is something that does bring a lot of joy. Thank you. All right, if there are no more questions, um, just want to say thank you to Uju. I mean, you can put up your video if you want and just say a little thank you so we can see your faces. Everybody's happy. I but... see everybody. But thank you guys for staying and everyone being present. I enjoy doing talks like this. Thank you, Chuka, for keep, giving me the platform to to speak about one of my life joys. Oh, thanks, thanks. There are people coming up and just to, yeah, just come up and say thanks. And well, everyone, people have shown their videos, so just to say thank you and wave. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Bye.